What's going on, guys? Welcome into episode number 57 of the Ask Tony Show. Thank you guys so much for being here. I'm really, really excited about today's questions. Um, there's been a lot of interesting things going on in real estate. We've had some uh, some deals go south, some deals go north. We've had people getting all sorts of weird situations. So I want to talk about it because some awesome questions have come up over the last two or three weeks. So let's get right into it. What's up with this cash above appraisal nonsense? I don't want to overpay. So I get it. You know, when it comes to cash above appraisal, this is a relatively new phenomenon, if you will. Uh, back when I started in real estate, you would never hear of anything of cash above appraisal, anything like that. People could get closing costs. They could get all sorts of stuff. They could get repairs really easily. Uh, it was a much different market. But now, as you guys know, because of the steep competition, there's this thing called cash above appraisal. What does it mean? It means that if you're making offers that are really high, which tends to be the case, the appraisal is very likely going to come low. So when that happens, uh, if there is an appraisal contingency, the expectation is that the price can be renegotiated. So the seller understands that if they take an offer that's really high above list price, then there's a really high probability that the appraisal is going to come low and they're going to be asked to drop that price. So what the cash above appraisal says is that if the appraisal comes low, I'm willing to put $5,000, $10,000, $15,000 above that amount to kind of make up the gap, to kind of cover the gap and make up the difference. Now, when it comes to this idea of not wanting to overpay, I completely understand it, but there are two concepts that you have to remember here. And some people understand it and it works for them and they get it and some people don't. But it's this concept of number one, supply and demand, right? The, 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 and I always use the example of sneakers because I, I love sneakers. I buy sneakers all the time. But why is it that Nike can make a shoe and sell it at retail for $150 and then shortly thereafter it's worth $3,000. Why is that? It's the same shoe. The shoe hasn't changed. It's still worth $150. That's what Nike sold it for at retail, but people are paying $3,000, $4,000 for that shoe. Why is that? And the reason why is because supply and demand, right? When there's not a lot of supply, maybe it's a rare shoe, a lot of people want it, it's a cool style, it's a new colorway, it's really rare, people want it and people are willing to pay, to overpay for that sneaker. That is a very common example uh, that, you know, when you apply it to this, it kind of works the same way right? How bad do you really want that house? There is a market value, which is what the appraisal gives you, just like there's a retail value for a sneaker, but then how much are you willing to pay? And so because the market is so competitive, it has become somewhat of a bidding war where whoever is willing to pay the most is going to win. It's become eBay. And so a lot of people don't like that, uh, but that's just the reality of the market, right? That's point number one. Point number two is this idea of cost benefit. So sometimes people say, oh, it's because I don't want to overpay because what am I getting back? So what is the benefit? And so the example that I use when I talk about this and when I train this concept to agents is the concept of, for example, you know, if you go to a sporting event, right, everybody's in the same stadium, but if I'm here and you're 10 rows ahead, you paid more than I did. 
So if I want to be where you are, it's going to cost me more money to do so. If I want to be closer, that's the benefit. Or for example, if you go to a theme park, I can pay extra money to not wait in line with everybody else. So there's an added cost to that, but then there's an added benefit to that, if you will. So these are common examples that we see in everyday life. And when you apply it to real estate, it kind of starts to make more sense. So when you talk about this idea of having to overpay, sometimes you have to, right? If you really want that house, if that's the one for you, if you love the area and you're fighting and you're competing with other people, then it really does become a bidding war. But I think that if we can keep in mind those two concepts of supply and demand and then the cost benefit, then it really helps to put things in a better perspective so that you can rationalize it better. Now, at the end of the day, if you don't want to overpay, then you don't want to overpay. That's why I say that sometimes this works for some and it doesn't work for others. But in most cases, if you see it that way, because that's just the reality, uh, then you can kind of start to feel better about it, if you will, and actually go through with the deal. I'm frustrated because my buyer is asking for things that I never asked for when I bought my house. So this is one of the biggest mistakes that people make when they're buying real estate is they compare one transaction to another transaction. And it's one of the worst things you can do because real estate is very, very nuanced. Not only, you know, let's say you're buying and selling at the same time right? Very, very common example that is happening right now. So you have two deals going on at the same time. You're selling and then you're buying. And so what a lot of people sometimes will try to do is they'll try to compare both transactions and they'll say, hey, why is my sale much more difficult than my purchase or vice versa? But what you have to remember is that there's a human element behind it and every single deal is different. You're dealing with different people, whether it's the buyer or the seller, different agents, a different property, different circumstances, a different lender, a different appraisal. Like there's just, there's just so many factors that are different from deal to deal that you cannot expect both deals to be exactly the same. So for example, it's very common that right now people are upgrading their home. And so when you go from owning a home at this level and now you're buying a home at this level, well, then in many cases, the home that you're buying is going to be in much better shape. Does that make sense? So maybe you might, you may not need all those repairs. You may not need home warranties. You know, you, it, it, it may not be uh, such a conspicuous inspection because it's a higher quality house. But then when your buyer comes and they buy your house, which is remember lower quality, and this is really hard for people to hear sometimes, but if you're upgrading, it means that your house is a lower quality than the home that you're buying. Um, and I know that hurts, but that's just the truth. And so because your home is a lower quality, uh, it could be that there are things that have to be done. It could be that your buyer maybe is more picky than you are. Maybe they have special needs. Maybe, they, maybe they're a first-time home buyer, and so they have a lot of anxiety, and you don't because you've already done this two, three, four, five times. And so you have to remember that every single deal is different. And if you try to compare one deal to the other, you're going to lose every time. Just like in life, right? If you're always comparing yourself to others, you're always going to lose because you're always going to find something to criticize about yourself. And so always remember that it's about having win-win situations. And this is what I always try to uh, explain to my people that are doing dual transactions. 
you have your buyer and sometimes buyers can be annoying. Sometimes sellers can be annoying and I get it. But at the end of the day, you want the deal to go through because you need this one to close so that you can get what you ultimately want, which is your profit in your property. So it comes into this spirit of cooperation that has to exist from everyone. And when it gets difficult is when you feel like the other side isn't doing their part. Uh, but that's why you have agents, right? Our job is to try to um, bring all those different factors together and get the deal done. But again, the number one mistake that you can make is compare your one deal with either your other deal or a deal from the past or your friend's deal or your mom's deal. You're going to lose every time. I bought a new house and the builder didn't complete some repairs I requested. What can I do? So when this happens, what most people will do is they'll call their agent right? They'll say, Hey agent, the builder didn't do this or they didn't do that. That's not a bad thing to do. Our job as agents is to help. It's to be there is to make sure that everything goes smoothly. But when it comes to builders, uh, you got to contact the builder. Now, in many cases you can do that through your agent, but I've had a couple of experiences recently where the builder will have their superintendent or their person in charge and they'll say, Hey, don't have your agent call me. Like if you have an issue, either call the warranty department or here's the number or, you know, go through this other person that handles the, the warranties or the, whatever the case may be. So you want to go after the builder. Now this is very common, right? And for some reason it, it happens all the time that something wasn't done. They said that they were going to fix this thing. They didn't do it. And so when you're in that situation, you have two options. Option one is to not close. So you can say, hey, I'm not going to close until this is complete. And you have your right to do that uh, if these were repairs that were negotiated and are, are in writing. So that's option number one. Most people don't want to go that route because mo most people want to close and they want to close as quickly as possible so that they can move in. But if it's something major, then you could say, hey, you know what? I'm not closing until this is done. Option number two is to close and then try to go after the builder afterwards. Now, most builders are really cool. Honestly, most builders do a great job, but sometimes you have to go through this annoying process, if you will, where you got to, you got to, you know, reach out to this person that handles the warranty and then they got to get back to you and you got to send them photos and you got to send this email to this email address and you got to wait for a response. And so it seems like a lot of, uh, how do I say a blue tape or red tape, some color tape to get to where you need to be but that's just the process. So you got to follow it uh, and make sure that when you make that decision, that it's a conscious decision. If you're closing without those items done, then you're closing without those items done. And hopefully the builder can do them. And in 99% of cases, they will. Sometimes you have to badger them just a little bit, but they'll do it. Uh, or the other option is not close. You just have to be really sure uh, and know what the consequences might be if you don't close. But you do have those two options every single time. A seller is asking me to let them stay in the house for two months after I buy it for free. Is that even legal? It's legal. It's real estate. You can do whatever you want. You can put anything you want in a contract. But a lot of people are freaking out right now because of this uh, leaseback slash extended possession arbitrage that is going on. And as I mentioned previously, it's because of the market. So the market dictates what sellers can or buyers can or cannot get away with. So one of the things that's happening is... And just to kind of give you guys a little bit of context as to why people are doing this in the first place. So if somebody is selling their house and they have to buy another one 
to move. There is a clause in the in the repsy in the contract that asks whether or not the buyer has to sell a home in order to buy the next one. And it's very explicit. It says, do you need to sell a home to buy the next one? So in many cases, again, as always, because of the competition, if you mark that you have to sell home A to buy home B, you're almost never going to win offers. It's very tough to do. Uh, And so what a lot of people will opt to do instead is they'll say, okay, I'll sell, get that out of the way. I have my money. I don't have to worry about my buyer canceling or it not going through or something like that. I'm good to go. So they'll sell and then in the contract, they'll stipulate, okay, give me 60 days. Right now, the, the, the common number is 60 days. Now, 60 days, why? Because as soon as they sell the house to you, buyer, they have to start the process of finding their next one. So a closing can take anywhere from four to six weeks, depending on you know, all of the external factors. So they need some time to search for the house. They need time to make their offer. Sometimes they may not win the very first offer, so they got to you know, be in the hunt a little bit. And so that they'll ask for 60 days. Now, sometimes you can negotiate uh, X amount of dollars for rent. So that can be done. It's called the lease back where you buyer are now the landlord. And so you say, Hey, I will rent back, lease back the home to you for X amount of days at X amount of dollars that can be prorated or it cannot be prorated depending on the situation. But there's also a thing called possession where you just simply say, Hey, I will take possession of the home 60 days after at no cost. You're not going to pay me. So in many cases, when there's multiple offers and there's a lot of people competing, the seller could say, I'm going to give priority to the people that will allow me the flexibility to buy my next house. That is very, very common. So what you have to think about is, is it worth it or not? Going back to question number one, the cost benefit. Like, sure, I'm going to have to pay, essentially, I have one mortgage payment before you even move in, but that might be the difference between winning the house and losing the house. And five years down the road, when you're in the house that you really love, is it actually going to matter? For some people, the answer is yes. For some people, the answer is no. I've seen it go both ways. But I've also seen cases where people insist on getting paid. So we put it in the contract and then they lose the offer to somebody who was willing to give them 60 days at no cost. And they're like, dang it. They're like, oh, can I change my offer? Like they can have all the time that they want. That's fine. But usually by then it's too late. So you want to make sure that you're smart about how you write your offer. Keep your emotions out of it and really think about the long-term cost benefit and see if it's worth it for you. Are you willing to lose the house because of that? Maybe you are. And if so, then that's okay. If you're not, then you got to think about it a little bit harder. I've heard the market has cooled down. Are prices finally coming down? So I don't know why people keep thinking that prices are going to come down, guys. When it says that the market, when you say that the market has cooled down, here's what that means. So if it's 100 degrees, if it was 100 degrees three months ago, now it's 90 degrees, which means it's still hot. It's just not as hot. Does that make sense? So has it cooled down? Yes, but it's not snowing. It's still hot. It's still hot as hell. So basically, if you translate that to real estate talk, What has happened is that back like two or three, four months ago, inventory was super low. 
At one point, I think there was only like 2,000 homes available in the entire state. Right now, it's more than double. So we're at over, I think, 4,500 homes, almost 5,000 homes, which is a more normal level. So naturally, going back to question number one, supply and demand. When there are more homes, there's more opportunity, there's less competition, and so things start to open up. But you're still seeing multiple offer situations. You're still seeing some cash above appraisal. Uh, you're seeing it less, but you're still seeing it. You're still seeing these 60-day leasebacks. Like all of these uh, things that point to a very strong seller's market, you're still seeing them. So prices are not coming down. What has happened is that homes have gone from having 25 offers to seven, but you're still competing. And so again, don't get it twisted. Don't get it confused. The fact that it has slowed down, we knew that was going to happen. That happens every year. Uh, always, 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 always second quarter, third quarter, much more inventory, much more opportunity. This is not new. If you've watched my videos for any period of time, you know, quarter one sucks. Quarter two, quarter three, much better. So that is what is happening, but prices are not coming down, guys. I'm sorry.